I'm Peter Rickaby. I uh, do retrofit basically whenever and however I can. Um, I've done a few jobs with Duncan before, including a couple of his podcasts and some work when he was at Renfrewshire. And um, I've also done a lot of writing for Jeff for Passive House Plus. So um, I've kind of been around you guys a lot. And as Sarah said, I'm going to have my 15 minute slot next week for the Architects Climate Action Network. And actually some of the same ideas might come out today as coming out there, because that's what's in my head at the moment, I'm afraid. I love consistency and messaging. Yeah, yeah. The repetitious messaging works. It's better. If you know what you want to communicate, let's just hammer these these key messages. Duncan and I were talking about that earlier. We're selling the same messaging to every possible client we can meet because They all need the same, the, their own version of the same thing and creating a, a common language, vocabulary, uh, framework for people to grasp and understand. I mean, that's what's really missing. Uh, I mean, it's not the only thing that's really missing. Funding as well. A will from government. All the usual yeah. things. That's will from contractors uh, as well. Yeah. All the usual <laughs> things. <laughs> just just to, so Pete and I have known each other for a number of years now and uh, a, especially around about the, the time when, when PAS, in fact, probably a couple of years before PAS was, was implemented. But but Peter Peter re- reviewed as and, and Peter worked with us at Renfrewshire um, uh, as a consultant, and um, Peter reviewed the tender documents that we've just um, the ECD have just won. So um, you know that that's um, that was that was great. We, we we developed that two years in the making. So. Peter knows the kind of stuff that we've been doing. So, yeah. Cool. And interestingly enough, I know the ECD guys too. I was down there a couple of weeks ago and they did say, oh, we've just, you know, been working on this project for Renfrewshire. And I thought, oh, great. Uh, so that's, it's all sort of coming together. It's a small community and everybody eventually knows each other. I don't know if Jeff, Jeff you've you done an introduction. I think the introductions are good. Because I, I don't need to introduce myself. You know, this isn't for recording, is it? Um, yeah, we can always cut. We can always cut you out. Oh, we can, no, we can, we can, we can, well, if, if, if I know, if, if I'm being recorded, I'll introduce myself. <laughs> no, it's fine. I, no, you, you know who I am, Jesus. Um, and and uh, everybody who's who, who's listening to the podcast, uh, uh, yeah. If they know if they know me already, that, 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 that I don't need to say it. And if they don't know me already, then then they don't need to hear it anyway. I have nothing worthwhile to say. <laughs> So yeah. he always he's always yeah. so self-facing, isn't he? He's always the first to I say kind of it as feel well. Like... It's such a waste of our time. <laughs> but listen, Peter, thank, thanks for coming on. Peter, you were the second guest that we had in the podcast, and and um, uh, and you know, I, I, I spoke to you during the week and said it'd be great if you come back on. We don't have any. We normally we, we try at least prepare, but I think the fact that this is a fairly relaxed conversation, and I think we'd like to just have a chat to you about how you feel the industry, how things are, are going in terms of retrofit, what, what are the, and some things that can be a bit negative, can't it? And, and hopefully there's a maybe more of a positive message, not sure. But it'll be good to find out from you in terms of what's what's going on around past 2035 or the work you've been doing in past 2030 and really just chew the fat really sure okay well i can start on that there was there were one or two other things i thought it would be interesting to talk about but um past 2035 easy to cover uh we're just starting the update process uh yesterday we had a retrofit standards task group meeting the bsi on what should be in the update and the retrofit standards task group which is made of uh techie retrofit experts rather than installers or industry reps or anything is very keen to continue to strengthen the PAS uh, to focus on protecting homes and occupants health uh, and so on 
there is a large chunk of the industry which is coming from a different direction, which is, please, can you make it easier and cheaper? And we're kind of resisting that process, um, although I'm afraid Bayes, the government department, seems to have got the ear of the installers, or the installers have got Bayes' ear. Uh, and so there's a lot of pressure on Bayes to kind of make it easier to deliver their programmes. I was really pleased uh, yesterday that one of the members of the Retro Standards Task Group brought up the point that the whole purpose of the Each Home Counts Review and the PASS is to protect the customers. It's not to make life easy for installers. And that went down, I think, really well with the group, but it slightly took aback the people at Bayes who were thinking, you need to water this thing down and make it more deliverable kind of thing. So that's where we are at the moment. We're just about to start. There's going to be a stakeholder workshop. Um, I don't mind announcing on this podcast, actually, that the current steering group for PAS 2035 and PAS 2030 is 55 people. And BSI, and it's completely unworkable. Uh, in fact, most of the managing editors and project managing editors at BSI and technical authors, including me, have refused to do it again with that many people because you can't bring 55 people to consensus. So the, the plan is to reduce that steering group to 15 people at the most 20. And I think that's going to be hugely controversial because lots of people who are used to turning up and refusing to agree anything won't even have a seat at the table. So uh, that will be interesting to, to watch. You know, if you want to watch a bun fight, that, that will be a good one to be at. <laughs> so the plan is to have the new standard by about the first quarter of next year, the new version. Um, and I think at the moment, the direction of travel is pretty good, probably a little bit more simple. We might lose the risk process and just have one route, one path. Uh, we'll probably try to reinforce the independence of the rhetoric coordinator. Uh, there's a certain amount of pressure to make the ventilation requirements align with the new approved document F for the building regs, although I think that's a little bit difficult. Um, and that's, I mean, those are the main things. Really. Oh, and a, a lot of a lot of changes to uh, allow us to focus better on scale retrofit for housing organizations. So uh, using types and subtypes to do the assessments, to do the improvement option evaluation, to do the medium term plans, to do the designs and to do the final evaluation. So uh, that should make things simpler, but with the proviso that we're not gonna let people lose sight of the variation within types. Uh, and typically the number of dwelling types that a housing organization uses is small and they have very large populations. And we think that we should go for a larger number of types with smaller populations in order that we can control the variation. So that would be a major change. The other change that people would like, but which isn't going to happen this time, is what can we do for owner occupiers? And PASS 2035 is kind of trapped in as a standard for government funded and promoted programs like ECO and SHDF. And it was never written for that purpose. It was written for the whole market. And so we've been talking about what would we do for owner occupiers. And Nigel Griffiths from uh, STBA, who many of you may know, um, many of the listeners may know, I guess, is um, quite keen on the idea of a PASS 2035 um, not content light, but process light, something online that householders can log on to, which kind of becomes their rhetoric coordinator and guides them through the process and tells them what they need to get and what they need to do and helps them make contact with people and so on, so that it's a little bit cheaper and easier and they can go at their own pace and all that kind of thing. 
So that's really I think that's, interesting. Really interesting. Yeah, well, I, we did start work when we were working on the first edition of Pass 2035 with Marina Tapuzzi and Gavin Killer at Oxford University on a, a an app for a phone that basically did did retrofit the retrofit app, and we've kind of revived that idea because of Nigel Griffith's suggestion. So one I one possible route is to bring them together, revive the app, make it something that runs probably on a tablet, I would think, or even on a desktop PC, and then just see where we can get to. Because I don't think we're going to get to the two-thirds of the households that are owner-occupied with a, a kind of rather dense book from BSI that tells you all sorts of things you've got to do. So we, we need a, a different way of communicating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, 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 we've been talking about uh, that able to pay market is a really, really important market. And, and sometimes you're right, Peter, you know, the majority of work, I mean, the, I, I have to admit, you know, over the last couple of years, I've, I've been dismayed sometimes about the attitude from government and certainly from contractors about their, uh, how they buy into PaaS. And I think you're right. I think the whole the whole point of the process, as you well know, as, as one of the authors, is about the protection of, of the consumer. Um, and uh, I've, I've been kind of slightly dismayed in terms of how that, how it's been perceived as being process heavy or, 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 or on, you know, I wouldn't say unworkable, but the, the, the moans and groans from the installers have been significant. And that has concerned me about how that influences mm-hmm. policy. But Sarah and I have been talking with, I think, wait, and Dan and I have been talking about it as well with a number of different companies about that able to pay market out there who is now being squeezed in terms of three thousand mm-hmm. I'm three thousand pounds to heat my home. You know? Yeah. And and well, this is it. To, yeah, sorry, this, suddenly yeah. it's viable, like the able to pay market. Yes. Or it's not strictly yes. viable yet yes. because you've still got yeah. to there's still not the expertise readily available. There's still not the economies of scale in place. You know, heat pumps. There's not enough funding. There's not enough heat pumps. There's not enough installers. There's not enough people to maintain it. And there's not enough parts to maintain them. Like uh, the heat pumps that are built in Scotland are exported into the continent currently. Uh, like that's the, the bonkers stuff that's going on. However, as soon as we get the, the affluent middle classes chattering about yeah. this, things will change. I mean, yes. my advice to one of the guys we're sort of working with at the moment is light a fire under them, put fear into them. Like, not about well, Ukraine, about the implications of Ukraine, of shipping, well, of all the things, <clears throat> pushing costs up right across the board and just get it done. I was going to slightly change the subject and say that uh, in this process, I've got a bit annoyed with the obsession the government seems to have with EPC band C. Yeah. Uh, everything seems to be, if you're band C, you're no problem, go away. If you're below band C, we might give you some money. And... My analysis of band C is that actually the bottom of band C is SAP 69, which is very poor. And for most households supported only by benefits, SAP 69 will not deliver affordable warmth. You have to go to the other end of band C, which begs the question of why the bands are so wide, um, in order to get to SAP 80, where it's suddenly possible to deliver affordable warmth. So I've been... Uh, harrow, ha- harrying at the government a little bit about let's get away from band C and to be um, I'm quite pleased that some of my UCL colleagues or my former UCL colleagues have started to do the same thing and say it's not appropriate but one of the lessons I think from that is that you know Ireland got it right 
by subdividing the EPC bands, A123, B123, and so on. And the UK government was terribly keen not to do what they call gold plate European directives. So they didn't do that. And we're now left with these bands, which are underpinning almost every program for whatever sector, and are beginning to emerge as underpinning the owner-occupied sector. And they're not appropriate. We need to think about uh, making them, what's the word, more granular in order that we've got a better support not, for policy. Not least to remember that it's um, based on assumptions that what what the information sits behind that has been built where it's supposed to be built and not actually, you know, built shoddily. Yes. So what that is, is an assumption that that's how that, that building is yes. performing when so often that it isn't even it. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's well, true about the way relative approach to it. Yeah, well, I, mean, I think you're, you're right, Sarah. The, you know, the whole point about not just RDSAP for EPCs, but SAP is that it assumes that all insulation is perfect. Mm. All air tightness is consistent throughout the building. All heating systems are perfectly efficient within the percentage that's been given. And actually, you know, reality isn't like this, is it? So um, we're being a bit optimistic, I think, sometimes with uh, that stuff. So uh, there's a bit of a reform needed in that area. I'll yeah. say. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, do you feel, given the given the um, given the review, there's reason to be optimistic about, and especially from the discussion earlier on, just about you know, going back to the basics of what is past 2035 for. Um, do you feel there's reasons to be optimistic about how it can be? I don't want to use the word reform, but but honed in a way that's that's perhaps um, better. I think your your term, Duncan, reasonably optimistic is the the nub of it. I, I, I fluctuated this year between being utterly depressed about the fact that it looks as though it's going to get watered down and dismembered and everything on the one hand, and then sometimes being more encouraged. As of yesterday, I'm feeling a bit more encouraged because there was a huge amount of support from the task group for doing it right. Uh, but the the problem is that the 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 people who push back, the installers in particular, who are were, were asking to do things in a bit more careful way and take a bit more time and spend a bit more money to do it, um, and who are less willing to understand the needs of the customer, uh, they also, when they don't get their way, they're the people who go to the minister. They're around the back door of the department, knocking on the door and saying, we'd like a meeting with the minister, please, and, yeah. and giving them all sorts of, I think, unfair statements like, well, if you don't make this easier for us, nothing will get done or you won't deliver your programme. So I but think... But isn't um, that why that bit about you said a couple of things there which probably sparked myself and Dan's ears a bit when you mentioned about, you know, don't quite have the needs of the occupant right front and centre. And then we talk about the fact that this subject matter is going to become very much more front and centre for an awful lot of people who yeah. are sort of peripheral and now that's going to become very much more front and centre and I think that I would hope that with the increased demand or at least demand for knowledge in the area from households generally who want to know a little bit more about energy efficiency and how they can do things in a long-term perspective that that will also bring some power of persuasion to those that are making the decisions because you know, they don't want necessarily the cheaper, quicker, shoddier job. They want to know that if they're going to spend on this and they need to protect themselves in the long term, that they have some reasonable and and also trustworthy protection from risks sure. of things gone badly. So yeah, and, and actually, that will also help that. 
Yeah, well, past 2035 is all about risk management, really. It's all about making sure there are no un- unintended consequences. And actually what Dan said at the beginning gave me great heart because I, I realised that the market will change. At the moment, in Parliament, you know, Tory backbenchers view energy efficiency and retrofit as toxic because they had the Green Deal and it was a disaster and look at what that did to Greg Barker. And they've had various other disasters along the way and lots of letters from people, disgruntled householders who've had their homes up to ministers and things and to MPs. And it's just, you know, most Tory back benches would say, don't go there. But I think Dan's right. Actually, they won't be able to avoid going there pretty soon because the, this massive hike in fuel prices is going to make such a driving force politically on the doorstep that I'm oh, sure things will happen. Wasn't it even in was it in The Guardian yesterday about how the IEA was talking about the fact that the lack of effort and emphasis in the UK on energy efficiency is just inexplicable, yeah. I think, is the word that they used. So yeah. even from the outside in, people are going, what are you doing? What are you doing yeah. over there? Like, this is a really, yeah, yeah, yeah. and we keep saying this all the time, like, whatever flavour of government you are, retrofit done well is a good news story. That's yeah. that's not an unusual situation for England to find itself in, <laughs> where people are looking sure. askance at what going on, what's going on here. I mean, uh, I'm not a monarchist, but there were lots of bemused people who were uh, looking at the Platinum Jubilee last week and wondering, you what? <laughs> <laughs> like, that, that was definitely taking place. I think yeah. what's interesting at the moment is uh, a lot of the political rhetoric I see knocking about the place. So we've, we've just hit this point in time where people are, feeling, uh, people are feeling all sorts of economic pressure. And the first response from the current government is cut taxes and another iteration of David Cameron's cut the green crap. So the reason why your fuel bills are so high, it's not because of wholesale prices or shipping costs, apparently. It's because of all the green tariffs. That's an 8% that you could have in your back pocket, yeah. except for all mm-hmm. the other stuff that goes on, precisely because yeah. this is a, a government driven by uh, consumption. Or it's the also, benefits it's of also to do with failure to invest, I think. You know, lots of things that we were all asking for 25 years ago never got done. Uh, including developing more more renewables and and more storage and better distribution networks and so on. All of that's yeah. been put put aside. That that was something that Nathan Gambling talked about that on his podcast, I think, rather than ours, about mm. how uh, we that that's something that in many ways spun out of uh, monopolies turned private. Like, so natural uh, public monopolies turned into private monopolies. So a yes. vertically integrated business the, like British Gas, it, they were selling the fuel. They were selling the the infrastructure. They were selling the boilers. They were selling the maintenance on the boilers. So it wasn't in their interest to get you to run your boiler efficiently because yeah. inefficient boilers use more fuel. They require more maintenance and you're going to have to replace it sooner. Mm. And that is something that's been inculcated in the culture from the get go. And this sort of overconsumption is a thing that has driven the British Isles since the Industrial Revolution. It is yeah. nothing new. That's interesting. Well, I take a little bit of heart from something I learned this morning about uh, some work being done by civil servants about what policies, emerging policies might look like. And they're actually writing policies, they say, off the record, for a future government that might be more amenable to them. They're they're writing stuff that when we looked at it this morning and yesterday, we said, ah, that'll never fly. And they said, no, but we think that when the government changes, we can make this fly. So even the civil servants are now looking to the next the next occasion. 
God bless the permanent government. You know, yeah. <laughs> I've got a question, Peter, because um, you know, uh, I I have this a uh, I, I play this uh, uh, fantasy role of of if we were in government, if we were ministers in government, if you were our housing minister, you know, the government announced fifteen billion pounds as, as as an injection into the, the the system, so to speak, for mitigation of fuel poverty. It's a you know blanket, I think. Is it three hundred? I can't remember how much it is per household. It's a several hundred pounds. But but that to me, without you know trying to make this a rhetorical question, is what what could we have done with that fifteen billion rather than simply just give that essentially to the power companies? What what would you have done? Well, it's not enough, is it? I mean, that that fifteen billion pounds is compares with six hundred and twenty five billion that we need collectively to spend in capital to do retrofit. And as you say, giving it as a sort of subsidy to people's fuel bills simply gives it to the energy industry and it inflates their profits. So it's a pointless exercise. And and I think it absolutely underlines what Dan was saying that the, the direction of travel, which is actually largely dictated by the treasury is is the wrong one and they they've never really acknowledged that they need to think about investment rather than subsidy so that i mean that's i think that's where we are really, and we've got to slowly i think it'll come out in the wash because i think things are going to start crashing mm-hmm. and when they do uh, there will be political crises and things and uh, yeah. usually the response is wrong but at least you get some response and you open up a debate if you yeah, remember the, I, the last fuel poverty crisis Gordon Brown won. You know, it was the prime minister himself setting up, stepping up and saying, right, we're going to get the energy companies to pay more for improving people's homes. And he might not, that might have not have been the best prescription, yeah. but it was at least a political activity that responded to the crisis. Yeah, I think the risk yeah. now I, is I that, wonder. That, that, I think the risk now, sorry, Jeff, uh, is that incompetence is built into the machine. Like the even the air of competence that came through with a David Cameron and a George Osborne, that's not essential anymore. Like you've got Nadine Dorries uh, blundering her way through whatever she has happens to be talking about. Like professionalism of any sort. I mean, you know, Keir Starmer hasn't got a hope in hell. He's uh, doesn't matter how forensic he might be. He's that professionalism that he projects, the managerialism, just doesn't really matter. It's a bit more of a, an entertaining sideshow. And yeah. something we've heard continually from the conversations we have, and uh, Bill Bordas and Adrian Lehman, when we had them on the podcast months ago now, they said they work with government, and this is back in the New Labour era, I think, uh, and they were told whenever they presented uh, a solution or a range of solutions, the minister that they were dealing with brushed them aside and said, oh, no, no, no. We want market-based solutions. Mm. So the thing Duncan and I are focusing on now where we're speaking with people and trying to put people together is whatever approach we take, it has to have a market-based application. This is not the right way to go about it. Like some sort of centralized version will have to coalesce eventually. But in the meantime, to make sure there's progress, I think... uh, I understand what you're saying, Dan, but I think that's ideological. I mean, I think it comes with the Tories. 100%, yeah. It, it wouldn't be true with another party in power, or, or to a lesser extent. It's, some of it's coming from the Treasury, obviously, but it's probably not as, as rigid as we come to believe over the last 12 or 15 years. Well, I uh, think so- on, on the strength of the current Labour Party, a uh, man like Wes Streeting being mooted as the next potential leader, like he's a hardline writer, like like the, the furthest right of New Labour back in the 90s and early noughties. Like he's he's not a, a centralization. He's a hardcore privatizer. 
and the Lib Dems who might form coalition. I don't see them. Like maybe a little a smattering of the Greens, but like this this sort of nationalisation debate. Like Starmer walking back on his pledge within months. Uh, like it's preposterous. Like I don't see where it can come from. But we can we can at least from our ideological perspective, because it is like saving the planet is something of an ideology. Uh, I think we can try and lay foundations which can be applied to a market-based solution, but can easily be converted to a nationalised solution, mm. like transport infrastructure. It's easy to fix the railways if we want to. But that messaging I- bit about ideologies and whatnot, and you know, you just said there, saving the planet. That's a bit ideological, isn't it? It reminds me of speaking to a colleague during the week who also teaches at architecture schools and is pushing very hard creative retrofit as uh, as an ideology to apply to thinking, to how you think, right? And there's all sorts of creative stuff. I've talked endlessly about that before, about the absolute incredible opportunities in retrofitting, in looking at our cities as materials banks, like blah, 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 all of that. But some students are still giving pushback about like, yeah, the environment's not really my thing. You know, I'm going to, and honestly, that made me want to weep because like, it's not optional. Like it shouldn't be that we feel that this is optional ideological. And that's like the bit that at the end of a busy week, I sometimes just feel like, oh God. But we do have to still kind of keep some of that hope and aspiration in the way we talk about these things. Because if you don't, we'll get lost in these sort of technocratic debates where one solution might be better than another solution. And we have to remind people time and again, like, hang on, like, where's your heart in this? Because this really does matter. And it matters beyond the measures that we put in place on our buildings. It matters beyond that. It matters to how do we improve people's lives? Like, how do we actually do that? And what does that mean? Because that's way broader than just simply retrofit. But retrofit can be a huge tool to bring that around, bring that change around. Well, I'd, I'd go further than that and yeah. say it's about it's about survival actually mm-hmm. yeah. it's, it's about survival and um, you know, I haven't met any students who've pushed back the way you've described actually Sarah most of the students I come across possibly because they self-select I don't know um, tend to be pretty committed to environmental goals and objectives but I, I guess you mentioned the schools Peter we might <laughs> <laughs> that's why that is okay. yeah sure <laughs> Hi, and thanks for listening. That's the end of part one. Part two is out on Thursday, and we hope you enjoyed it. Meanwhile, here's a little plug from the AECB. The AECB is a network of individuals, companies, and organisations promoting sustainable building, and we've been around since 1989. We're the largest members-based sustainable building organisation in the UK, with over 1,800 members. Our aim is to bring together tradespeople, architects, engineers, builders, and anyone interested in low-carbon retrofit to train and promote best practice. We want to bring about lasting change and sustainable change within the construction industry and push towards our net zero targets. To that end, we've developed our AECB retrofit and new build standards. We have a range of membership packages from student level to corporate, and we offer a number of training courses that are aimed at those involved in domestic retrofit. To add to all this, we're the UK's reseller of Passive House Planning Package, PHPP. We also sell PH Ribbon, which is a tool that allows designers to assess the embodied carbon of materials that they're using within their construction projects. So if you're interested in any of this, please get in touch or head over to the AECB.net. Thank you.